one thing that concerns me when I'm sensing people and I hear somebody talking about how they're going to be better. What concerns me a lot of times is that they will, they'll have a determination and a sincerity. I'm going to do better this time. I, I promise you, Judge, I'm not going to go back down the same road. I'm really determined this time. I'm going to do it, and I, I know I can. And I wish them all the best, and I hope that's true. But from my faith perspective, I don't think any of us can do it on our own. I think we need community and faith. Welcome to the Stay Free Forever podcast, episode 10. My name is Clifford Fuel, host of the podcast that aims to help you adapt and thrive. For most people, to adapt in life means simply to go with the flow, follow the golden rule, and get along with others. In the world of criminal justice, wherever there's a courtroom, the word adapt takes on very specific meanings. Be back here in three months and bring your timesheets. Do not go anywhere where alcohol is served or sold, or worse, report for custody. My guest today is one who, for the last three years, has been tasked with issuing those types of orders in Delta County, Colorado, a position he sought after years as a private practice attorney in Westminster, along the Front Range, and as Chief Deputy District Attorney in Mesa County, on the Western Slope. Judge Bo Zirup is a 53-year-old native of Beaver Dam, Michigan a rural community in the southwest part of the state, where he and a younger sister were reared by his mother, a government elementary school teacher, and father, a tool and die maker, who later opened up his own machine shop. Judge Zirup says he enjoyed growing up in the country, riding his three-wheeler, and celebrating events and holidays with his family. For most of his childhood, he thought he might grow up to be a dairy farmer. He attended Beaver Dam Christian School and Unity Christian High School. He recalls being a good student who was okay at some sports and who came to enjoy drama and choir in high school. In 1992, he graduated from Central Michigan University with a bachelor's in political science and government. And in 1998, with his law degree and a master's in law and government from Regent University, the private Christian university founded in 1977 in Virginia. He currently lives in Delta County with his wife and five children and is the first judge to appear as a guest on this program. So I'm delighted to say, welcome to the Stay Free Forever podcast, Bo Zirup. Thank you for having me. What sports were you okay at? Oh, well, I went to a small Christian rural school where everybody played every sport. Boys, girls, we were all thrown in together. You didn't really have much of an option because if you said no, we didn't have a team. And so uh, I went through a, a school that was K through eight, and there was about less than 100 kids in the school. So I played softball, soccer, basketball, volleyball, track and field. We all did it all. But I would say my favorite was probably soccer. My guess is that you were a striker. Oh, I played all over. We, we switched out uh, positions, so I don't remember too much about a particular position. Football, basketball, baseball, which of those did you enjoy most? Basketball. I, I didn't enjoy baseball. We played softball too much. And, um, and interestingly, 
the Christian schools in that era did not have football teams. It was uh, seen as too violent. I did play basketball and I enjoyed that as well. Were you a point guard? I was. I'm not surprised. The guys who I played basketball with who were point guards have all been very successful in life. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when you became a judge three years ago, the Delta County Independent interviewed you and you said to the reporter, Lisa Young, time will tell what my courtroom would be like. I don't think I'll be on the formal side of things, but there does need to be some respect and formality to the judicial proceedings. Certainly there needs to be order and there needs to be some efficiency. So you've had some time. What does time say about the courtroom that you've presented to the community? Wow, that's interesting that you found that quote from three years ago. I remember saying it now that you, you remind me, but uh, that's interesting that I said that. You know, sometimes it's better to ask other people what they think of you than what do you think of yourself. I still don't know if my courtroom is very formal or not. I still think probably it's a mix. You know, when we're having a contested hearing or something like that, I expect the attorneys to stand up, speak loud and clearly, stand at the podium and be prepared. But when we're finished with a case, we can talk about weekend plans and uh, what we're enjoying doing these days uh, in our free time and joking around. And so I enjoy all of that. I hope that my courtroom is considered to be accessible to all people. I firmly believe that all people are important and worthy of respect. And I try to give people time in my courtroom to speak their mind and to tell me their side of the story. Sometimes I get behind because I give people too much time maybe, but I think in the long run, that's the right thing to do. So haven't thought about that question for a long time. So thanks for helping me think about that. Do you have any other specific questions about that? Well, sure. In the same vein, you've been a judge for three years, but for 20 plus years before that, you were a lawyer and, and a prosecutor. How has courtroom decorum or demeanor changed in that time? It's gotten less formal over the years. I remember when I went to law school, I'll never forget this, actually, one of the very first days of law school, maybe the first day, our professor, who happened to be the dean of the law school, asked a question. And thankfully, it wasn't me who answered, but the person who answered remained seated. And he said, stand up, Mr. Smith. When you're a lawyer in court, you're going to need to stand up and speak up loud and clearly. Actually, I think we've gotten away from that a bit. I sometimes have to remind the attorneys to stand up and don't bring food to court with you and be respectful of the courtroom. I'll tell you something that's made it even more of a challenge is all the virtual court appearances. People think that if they appear virtually from their homes, they can eat and drink and smoke and have their dogs in their lap and wear their caps. And uh, I try, I'm trying to train people. No, when you appear virtually, it's as if you are in court. You're appearing in court. Act like you're in court. So I think it is a struggle to keep a little bit of uh, that formality and respect. People's behavior when they are in court with you and the way they dress and things like that, are you able to set a standard there? Well, I'm harder on the attorneys than I am on the litigants, uh, the parties themselves. The attorneys, they should know better. They should dress respectfully and modestly and professionally. You know, even that with some of the younger attorneys, they're showing up with various piercings and tattoos and things that 
I guess I'm an old guy now at 53, but I personally don't think they're very appropriate or professional. I'm more flexible with the people who come to court who, from the community who are the litigants themselves. Every once in a while, someone will wear a shirt to court and it'll have some sort of cuss word or swear word on it. I'll go ahead and tell you one now and you can beep it out if you want to. Okay. One young, one young man wore a shirt and he said, I'm the nicest asshole you'll ever meet. And he oh. wrote that and he wore it to court. And I thought, should I confront him? Should I make him turn it inside out? And I just decided not to worry about it. I wasn't that offended by it. And uh, we had bigger fish to fry. And sometimes I think they might do such things just to try to get a rise out of the person in authority. So if you just let it go, you take the wind out of their sail a little bit. What tips or advice would you have for litigants who are coming to your court or any court that helps them? Well, it's pretty... I think basic common sense sort of things, and some of which we just talked about, I really do appreciate it when defendants and litigants appear and they are professionally dressed. Sometimes I'll have young defendants who appear in suits and you can tell it's not their normal clothing. <laughs> it's either way too big or way too small, but I appreciate the effort that they showed up with a tie or a jacket. Also, of course, just good grooming and polite conversation and being prepared. Those are all things that are just pretty basic life skills, but it makes a difference. As a young reporter in court covering a story, there was some downtime, so I pulled out a newspaper and started reading it, and I heard about it from the bailiff. Why is that? I think it maybe showed some disrespect or some disinterest in being there. I wouldn't like it either. I would say if you want to read your newspaper, go outside in the hallway and read your newspaper, but don't do it in court. If you're in court, pay attention to what's happening in court. Have you ever been to a court as a litigant? One time when we were changing my daughter's name, we went to court, so it was pretty you know, non-confrontational. How did you feel? Oh, because it was non-confrontational, there wasn't anybody on the other side, so it was enjoyable. What's the worst trouble you've gotten into in your life? Worst trouble. Wow. Well, I've never been in jail. I mean, I am aware of some significant character flaws that I have, but they haven't so far gotten me into too much trouble in society. <laughs> of course, I got into little problems as a kid, you know, little fights and stealing a candy bar once, things like that, but nothing very serious. You know what? I do have a memory for you now. <laughs> when I was a kid, one of my first jobs was I was picked blueberries in the blueberry fields in Western Michigan in the summertime. And one time I was picking blueberries and I got bored. Now I was like 10 or 11 years old and there were some new small blueberry shrubs. And I have no idea why I did it, but I thought I would destroy them. And so I kicked them and stomped on them. And I was just being a very immature young boy. Later that day, the owner of the uh, blueberry field came up to my mom and I and said, do you know who might have, did you see anybody do anything to these new shrubs? Because that was about $200 worth of blueberry shrubs that somebody destroyed. Did you see anything? And my mom said no. And on the way home, I felt sick to my stomach and I cried and I said, mom, I got to confess to you. <laughs> it was me. She said a good old saying, well, son, just remember, your sins will always find you out. 
And she, <laughs> she said, I'm glad you told me and we'll talk to him tomorrow. And when we told him, uh, there was no punishment. Sometimes that feeling in the gut of our stomach is the worst punishment of all. Yep. You're still talking about it almost 50 years later. Yep, I could take you to the exact spot. <laughs> the other point brought up in this article about you, over the years, you've gained a reputation as an advocate of understanding the importance of bonding and pretrial release within the judicial system. And you got some choice quotes about that. I'd like to hear it from you today. Educate us. Wow, thank you. There's a lot there. I've done actually quite a lot of trainings on that. And it's been sort of my main extracurricular hobby or area of interest uh, in the legal field. The whole time frame of pretrial, what happens before a case is finished, while a case is pending, has really gotten short shrift and has not been given the attention it should because decisions are made there that can really set somebody on the right path or the wrong path. If a judge is too harsh or too lenient with bond conditions, for example, that can really throw somebody for a loop or can endanger the public. It can cause somebody to lose their job if they stay in jail. You lose your job, you lose your money, your finances, you can lose your apartment, relationships. So the research shows that if you incarcerate low to medium risk people pre-trial, even for a couple of days, you increase their likelihood of recidivism because you disrupt their lives so much. The other thing I've, I've thought about is if somebody is going to be in jail before they're actually convicted of a crime, it better be few and far between, and it better be for a really good reason, and it better be because a judge made that decision. And we've really got to get rid of cash bail in the United States. It has done tremendous harm. There's no research or logical reason to support the cash bail system that has risen up in our country in the last, oh, 150 years. So I could say more, but there you go. That's a start. How do you handle that in your courtroom? When's the last time you had cash bail for someone? Well, here's the problem. In Colorado and in many states, we don't have what I advocate for, which is an, called an in or out system. Hold or release. Bail, no bail. If I have someone who is truly dangerous, which is not a very large percentage of the population, but it, there are some, or if I have someone who is truly going to attempt to avoid prosecution, I don't have the ability to just hold them without bail. So I have to use money to hold them. But I do it very intentionally and openly, and I'll set a bail that I don't think they can post because I intend to keep them in jail. It is a conscious decision I've made. So I might set a $10,000 cash-only bond. Now, in the three years that I've been a judge, I've set thousands of bonds. Not once have I used a bondsman, and I never will use a bondsman. But uh, I have to use cash to hold people in jail because that's the only way I can do it in Colorado until they change the law. On the federal level, judges can hold or release people, and they don't have to use money. How close is that law to being changed? Well, we tried a few years ago, and I could get into reasons why it failed, but it's complicated. There's lots of interests on both sides. There's certainly a push nationwide to diminish the use of cash bail or eliminate it. They just did it in Illinois, 
and they've virtually eliminated it in New Jersey, uh, the federal system, Kentucky. There's other places, especially other places that don't use bondsmen. It used to be bail, no bail. Uh, that used to be the system until the commercial bondsman got involved and we commercialized pretrial release, which was a huge mistake because you interjected corporate profit into the criminal justice system. And that should not have ever happened. And it's caused problems ever since. It sounds like you're a conscious champion of the litigant or the defendants in ways that are transparent and appropriate. Is that fair to say about you? Well, it depends. Uh, <laughs> you know, if, if I decide that the defendant needed to stay in jail and I imposed a $500,000 cash-only bond, that person doesn't think so. <laughs> mm -hmm. That person doesn't feel like I'm an advocate for them. But I will tell you that just recently I've been looking at my, my data and stats from my courtroom, and I actually, I release uh, over 90% of the people on personal recognizance bonds, no money. Initially, I give them a shot at being at liberty on bond, PR bond with no money. And so pretrial, I would say yes, because they're still presumed innocent. They're brought into the system and they're accused of something. And the evidence may be strong, but they have not pleaded guilty and they've not been found guilty. And so in the eyes of the law, they have not committed a crime. And so often there's pressure for, for a judge to punish somebody as soon as they're arrested by keeping them in jail on, on cash bail. And that's just simply not appropriate. It's not constitutional. It's not just. So 90%, that's a good, strong number. Do you have any idea of that 90%, how many earn your trust? Well, it depends what you mean by that. What I can tell you is that we keep track of a couple of things. We keep track of what's called perfect court appearance and perfect law-abiding rate. Those are in the 70% range that a person that has perfect court attendance or perfect law-abiding rate during the pretrial period where they don't commit any new crimes. You know, we also need to really re-examine the whole discussion about what do court appearances mean and what crimes are we really concerned about? Because a lot of the repeat crimes are, for example, someone doesn't have a license and then you tell them to come to court next month. <laughs> well, Quite often, they'll drive to court so they don't get a warrant, and then they get pulled over and they get another case. We shouldn't be that concerned about that. That's not a real true public safety issue, in my opinion. Is that where Zoom comes in handy? Yeah, it can. Certainly, that can be helpful. How are people adjusting to that? Well, it's being used more and more. And in Colorado, we are having different judicial directives come down as to which hearings it's appropriate for and which it isn't. The challenge is, especially with the majority of the defendant population that struggle with indigency, mental health, and substance issues, to be honest, a lot of the substantive discussions with their attorneys actually take place at the court appearance. And so if you just say, oh, you can appear virtually, cases get drawn out longer because they're not actually meeting with their attorneys. You're dealing with all those people you mentioned, mental health issues, substance abuse issues, in our conversations leading up to this, you describe yourself as a man of faith. How does your personal belief in a higher power intersect with your performance as a judge deciding people's futures? Thanks for asking that. 
I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and I don't think I would be a judge if I wasn't a Christian. And it informs everything I do. It causes me to want to strive to be fair, impartial, just, compassionate, merciful, but also understanding the role of the criminal justice system in our society. My worldview comes from the Bible. And the Bible says that uh, civil government is instituted to bear the sword against the evildoer, meaning punish the person who commits crimes. And so that's part of my role is to issue punishment to people who commit crimes. So my faith, again, it impacts every decision I make. I hope it makes me a better judge. Uh, it causes me to be um, compassionate and the other thing it does is I know that the criminal justice system is not the end of the road. It's not the, the be-all and end-all. It's part of our society, but it's really not meant to cure all ills. And I don't try to do that as a judge. I don't try to fix everything. Do you ever have the opportunity to have that personal Christian conversation with a lawyer or a litigant? I don't very much. And that is one of the biggest struggles for me. I will tell you, when I'm making decisions on the bench, I am regularly praying as I'm making decisions that I would do the right thing. And I believe that has um, been a great help to me. But it is a frustration that I don't think that I can just talk to them about my Christian faith and, and how I think faith could help the person, the defendant, because that's not the role of civil government magistrates. And I, I want to make sure I honor that, that line. Now, if I see him on the street, I might talk to him about it. Uh, and I've done that a couple of times. I'm actually developing a friendship right now with someone who is on parole and is a felon, uh, just got out of prison. He uh, showed up at our church one day and so I reached out to him and started a relationship with him. And I, I love interacting with, with people who have been in the criminal justice system and uh, being their friend. Uh, what I find a lot of times is that a lot of times people don't feel worthy of a friend. And it's really interesting when I try to befriend somebody who's been, a, been in jail or in prison and they, they give this impression that they don't feel worthy my friendship and I that's interesting to me but to me we're just people you know yeah I wear a judge's hat for my job but when I take the judge's hat off I'm just Bo you know one thing that concerns me when I'm sensing people and I hear somebody talking about how they're going to be better and what concerns me a lot of times is that they will they'll have a determination and a sincerity I'm going to do better this time. I promise you, Judge, I'm not going to go back down the same road. I'm really determined this time. I'm going to do it, and I, I know I can. And I wish them all the best, and I hope that's true. But from my faith perspective, I don't think any of us can do it on our own. I think we need community and faith. I agree. That's well said. You've been an administrator for a pretty good-sized Christian church along the front range, and you've been an administrator at a private law firm. 
How are the two similar and not similar? Well, administration is just, I guess I would say, just getting things organized uh, and making sure your T's are crossed, your I's are dotted. Basically, administrators create an environment uh, within which other people can exercise their gifts and accomplish their goals and purposes. So in the law firm, it was a very small law firm. It was a friend of mine that started it, and he was an entrepreneur. And a lot of times entrepreneurs are not administrators. They're big dream people and they, they want to move on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing before, before we're organized. And so we were a good fit because I could slow them down and say, well, we probably should maybe get some insurance to cover this. And we probably need to think about HR issues here. And, and in the church setting, similarly, a lot of pastors are not very administrative. They're very good at counseling. They're very good speakers, but they might not be very good in organizing and administrating an, a large, fast-growing organization. And so hopefully I, I assisted them by doing that. I definitely have some administrative gifting and I enjoy getting things organized. I did joke when I was at the church, you know, we had a sign out front and, you know, you can put the, the, the letters out there and little sayings. And I said, if I was in charge of that sign, I would probably say, no more people welcome until I get these folks organized. <laughs> Excellent. Spoken like a true organized administrator. Yep. I think it was in an email. You said that you caught a break. You got to do some office work and you didn't have to do the bench that day. And you put a little smiley face next to it. Do you have a preference for office work versus being on the bench? I like the mixture. But I am scheduled to be on the bench in the courtroom most days from about 8.30 to 5. And so things pile up in my inbox, my judicial inbox, my email inbox, and motions and things that I have to deal with, uh, so-called paperwork. So that's a pressure and a stressor. So I like the mixture, actually. And I don't know, just off the top of my head, if I could have it my way, I'd probably do like a two-thirds, one-third mix, two-thirds in the courtroom, one-third in the office. That'd probably be nice. What do you like best and least about your job? Well, the thing I like best is applying the law in the courtroom to the situations, to the people before me, and also feeling good about decisions I make in the courtroom and how they affect people. The thing I like least is probably some of the little administrative tasks I I'm responsible also for uh, money debt cases. And so I get, a, I get dozens and dozens and dozens of those where they're filing for people who didn't pay their credit cards or their medical bills. And that's a lot of paperwork, a lot of computer work, and it's pretty tedious. That's what comes to mind when you say, what don't you like about your job? You've got a staff of how many working with you? Well, that's another interesting thing about being a judge is I don't have anybody that works for me. There are clerks that work in the courtroom with me and they assist me, but they don't work for me. I have no hiring authority over them, no supervisory authority over them. They answer to the head clerk. I'm really kind of on my own. They do help in the courtroom, like with scheduling and entering data and things like that. You don't have any direct line employees? No. Is that true across Colorado? Yes, for all county court judges and 
district court judges. There, there are a few district court judges that may have a law clerk, but even then they don't work for that judge. They are uh, employees of the chief judge. So the chief judge would have some direct line employees. What haven't we talked about that you think I might've asked you and didn't, or that you think is important to talk about? Maybe a question about sentencing. Yeah, I'd like to hear your thoughts on sentencing, any aspect of it. Sentencing is probably the most difficult decision because it's where punishment comes into play. Before that, I'm just applying the law to the situation. I don't have as much discretion and I'm not actually asking myself, what punishment does this person deserve? What consequence? Because I've often said punishment is sort of in the eye of the beholder. And it used to be actually where consequences and punishment were more suited to the crime. In olden days, for example, when we made people work to recompense their crimes, if you stole a $100 cow, <laughs> you'd be found guilty of theft and you would have to pay them back twofold. And if you didn't pay them back, you were forced to work and your wages would go to pay them back. But we don't have a system like that now. We have a system where what we do is we take people's liberty away. We put them in a cage for a period of time. We could talk about whether that's a good idea. I have my concerns and doubts about it. But that's all I got for punishment. And so that is difficult. That is difficult to ask myself when somebody commits a DUI, how many days should I make them sit in a cage? That's a hard decision. It never brings me joy to sentence somebody to jail, but the law requires it. That's a great question. I'm glad I thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the difficult decision, of course. You know, it's easier to send somebody to probation and fines, fees, costs, treatment, counseling, therapy. I mean, we do all of that. And then the other one is useful public service. And I actually really appreciate useful public service as an option because that is really making them give back to the community. So I am a big fan of useful public service sentences with suspended jail. So you say, look, you wanna give back to your community, you do these useful public service hours. If you don't get them done, then you'll have to just sit in a jail cell. That would motivate me. Well, it motivates most people, but it's surprising how many people end up serving that suspended jail sentence. So as you know, there are three parts to the Stay Free Forever podcast. And the second part is one in which I read from a workbook or an online course that someone has taken and get your thoughts on their response to whatever the question was. Sound okay to you? Okay. All right. A student was assigned a parenting workbook in December of 2022. She is a 29-year-old single mom who said she was assigned the course after being cited for drinking beer to intoxication in her roadside broken down vehicle while her children slept in the rear seat. And then she herself fell asleep and was difficult to revive by the property owners whose driveway she was partially blocking. In the, uh, the unit called families, unit two, there are a couple of questions. One of them simply asks the student to list children's behavior and solutions to those behaviors. So she listed not listening as one behavior. And then her solution was listen to them, set boundaries. The child's behavior was fit throwing. Her solution, 
don't give in, be assertive. And then the third one was messes. She said, set expectations. Remember, accidents happen. And then the next question said, if you could go back and start over, what are three things you would do differently in parenting? List them. And there are three places for her to respond. Number one, choose a different dad for my children. Number two, create structure. Number three, make sure I was stable in life before I had children. I think there's a lot of wisdom in her answers. We can't go back and change the past, but there's some wisdom there from someone who made some mistakes. Now, I think she can uh, turn it around and there can be some good, some good future for her and her children, but I'd like my kids to hear that advice actually. Be careful who you choose as a spouse. Be prepared to have children. Provide structure for your children. Get ready for that. Uh, that's good advice. So it sounds like she has some wisdom now. There's a saying that I that I tell my children, and that is a smart person learns from their own mistakes. So she has the opportunity to be a smart person. A wise person learns from the mistakes of others. Don't settle to be smart. Don't just be okay with making your own mistakes. I know you'll make mistakes. But try to be a wise person and learn from others' mistakes. But I don't, I don't have much to correct there. I think she gave some great answers. The third part of the Stay Free Forever podcast involves each of us sharing a quote or a passage that we like or find compelling and share it and talk about it. Who would you like to go first? You. All righty. I'm in the process of reading a book called Rebuilt, the story of a Catholic parish, awakening the faithful, reaching the lost, making church matter. Uh, it's by a Catholic priest from Maryland named Father Michael White and his church administrator, Tom Corcoran. What I love about this book is that they realized that they were in charge of a dying parish. There were lots of gaps in the pews they set upon a mission to try and reverse that trend, but doing it in a way that was consistent with scripture. They found themselves going to Congregationalist church, big Baptist church, all sorts of uh, non-denominational churches, Protestant churches, to find out how were they growing. So they, they kind of took their hat in hand and sought to learn. So Tom Corcoran writes, I came across an interesting book by a youth pastor named Doug Fields from Saddleback Church in Orange County, California. At the time, I held the position of youth minister here at church. Mostly, I kept busy hosting as many programs as I could manage with little to show for it beyond my own frustration and fatigue. Doug is an advocate of doing ministry with a purpose in mind, God's purpose. Simple as it sounds, that's exactly what we weren't doing at Nativity. After reading the book, which immediately made sense to me, I began evaluating my programs based on the five biblical purposes for church ministry that Doug outlines. Worship, fellowship, discipleship, ministry, and evangelization. I started changing fun field trips into evangelization events. We transitioned religious ed classes into fellowship and discipleship environments. We also began inviting students to serve as ministers and get involved in worship. 
These initial efforts were simple and successful in ways that the more labor-intensive ones that I had been doing hadn't been. It felt very different. What do you make of that? Wait a minute. I thought you, <laughs> I thought you were going to say a quote that meant something to you, and you were going to explain it. Fair enough. What I like about that is, is the fact that it took some humility for this priest and this church administrator to go look at other churches that weren't Catholic churches to find out what are they doing right? What are they doing that we aren't doing? And I like the part about the youth because uh, a church will die. Any organization will die if there aren't youth getting involved, if you're not making it attractive to young people. And because the forces of evil, as you say, are so widespread in our society today, it's online, it's on TV, it's in movies, it's in friend groups, and it's in trends and in entertainment. Some sort of spiritual compass is necessary. So I love the fact that this youth group leader took some advice from a different faith and changed his way. He started doing things that were more relevant to the youth, that got them more interested. He started making them ministers. It wasn't just, I'm the minister, you're the learner. It's, you're a minister too. We're all ministers. It made me feel some hope for churches everywhere. Okay. Thank you, Your Honor. <laughs> what do you think of it? I agree. I think that you're right. It does take humility for a pastor, a leadership from one church to go to another church, another denomination, another faith tradition, and ask, what are you doing right that we're not, and try to incorporate some of those things. That, that's true. That takes humility. I certainly think humility is a key to success in life. Because I'm a Christian, uh, a lot of times we, we talk about God's kingdom being the upside down kingdom. Because in the world, the world says, watch out for yourself, get all you can get, be proud, be proud. And actually, the secret to happiness and success is just the opposite of those things. Which leads me to my quote. Are you ready? Okay. So this quote is from a book that I've been reading recently called The Thrill of Orthodoxy, Rediscovering the Adventure of Christian Faith by Trevin Wax. And in the foreword, there's a quote that says this. It was J.M. Barry's Peter Pan who said, quote, to die will be an awfully big adventure, unquote. But to die daily in the service of not some earthly prince, but of the king of kings is an even bigger adventure. And that's the quote from the book that I have recently really appreciated because the, the Christian faith is an invitation to die, to die to oneself, to die to your desires, to die to your plans, and to live for a greater purpose, to live for the kingdom of God, which is described in the Bible as righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Who doesn't want righteousness, peace, and joy? I mean, that's a wonderful thing. And so we're called to build those things, build that kingdom in our lives, in our relationships. But the best way to do that is to die to ourselves. Dying daily in the service of the King of Kings is, is my life goal. I don't do it very well every day. You can ask my wife and children. We all have a tendency to be selfish. But my goal is to be humble and to live in service of the King of Kings and other people.
not myself. What's a specific way that you can die to yourself in an everyday way? Do the dishes after dinner <laughs> because I hate doing the dishes. And so it is a service to my wife and my children. And it's something that I do not like to do. And that is a little silly example of dying to oneself. I can't think of a more universal example, actually, because <laughs> everyone has to do the dishes. Yep. The Christian faith says he who wants to be great is to be the servant of all. So that's my, my goal is to be a servant. And, you know, being a judge makes that difficult in a way, because some people look up to you and think, oh, you know, you're, you're a judge, you're a big shot, you've been successful. But really, I just want to serve. I want to serve the attorneys, the litigants, the people that come before me, serve my community. How do you think you're doing? Well, like all people, I have my good days and my bad days. So there's room for improvement. And there for us all. Well, Judge, I really appreciate the time you've made for this. I'm grateful. I wish you could talk that way from the bench, but I know you can't. Well, I always try to communicate truth from the bench, but I can't always give the foundation for that truth. The Stay Free Forever podcast is recorded and produced by Clifford Fuel, owner of Stay Free Forever LLC, a Colorado and Wyoming company. Stay Free Forever provides adult and youth life skills courses via both e-learning and mailed workbooks, plus Zoom classes for any age group. Our theme music was composed and performed by James Benjamin Fuel. Editing and technical assistance are provided by Mary Tulin. My name is Molly Moore. For more information, go to stayfreeforever.com or email Clifford at stayfreeforever.com.